Rabbanit Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Walkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We're the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the beautiful Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. This week's episode is going to have two different parts. First, we're going to be interviewing Rabbanit Sarah Walkenfeld, who is the director of the Adam R. Strauss Memorial Mikvah. Um, and we'll be talking with her about why it's important that we have a mikvah, what it takes to keep our mikvah up and running, what's special about the Anshe Shalom Mikvah. It's, it's a really, it's a huge privilege that our synagogue has a mikvah, and we're so grateful to all that Rabbanit Sarah Walkenfeld does in order to keep it up and running. Um, and in our second part of this episode, Rabbi Walkenfeld and I will be introducing one of the Gilyonot, one of the sheets prepared on the Parsha by uh, Professor Nechal Malibowitz, which are recently, as of this week, available on Safaria for public consumption. And we'll be talking about kind of the genre of her Gilyonot, and we'll be using one to discuss um, respect for the elderly, which is one of the themes, one of the mitzvot in this week's Parsha. We're here today with Rabbanit Sarah Walkenfeld, the director of our mikvah, but also she has a day job where she's the director of education at Safaria. Um, so we're mostly going to talk about our mikvah. This is going to be a kind of a special mikvah-focused episode of the Straw Hat. But um, do you want to say anything about your, your day job first before we get going? Sure. I'm director of education at Safaria. Safaria.org is an online platform for learning Jewish texts. We're building the future of Torah by creating open access to an open source platform that has the vast majority of the Jewish canon as much as possible, both in Hebrew and in translation. It's a very exciting project to work on. And if it's okay, I'll just mention that the newest addition to Safaria's library is a complete collection of the Gilyonot, the sheets, the source sheets of Nechama Leibowitz, a very famous modern scholar of Torah, of, of Parsha Newt, really. She did an amazing job collecting different Mepharshim, different commentaries on each Parsha and using those to answer really insightful and incisive questions that she collected. She herself compiled sheets and would mimeograph them and, and send them to her students, mm-hmm. mail them to her students, and they would <laughs> send them back. Uh, she was famous for her, her red pen markings on their answers. And we've preserved actually on our site both the originals, you can see photos of the originals, as well as completely digitized versions with many of them in translation. So I hope that after you listen to this podcast, you'll all check that out. The shul actually has a complete collection of the mimeographed uh, Gilyonot of Nechem Leibovitz. Where? Uh, in the library. There are binders of them in the library. Wow, uh, they're n- not the most uh, user-friendly, uh, uh, but it's really cool that we have them. Uh, Rabbi Paul Sager picked them up uh, one wow. year when he was a student uh, in Israel. Uh, picked up a complete set and he gave them to the shul. We also have uh, her, um, like the uh, printed uh, version that uh, was uh, translated into English uh, some years ago. And now everyone has uh, has the Safaria version. So that's a really exciting development for uh, everyone who loves Torah. So. Yeah, the binders are for Shabbos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, so, Sarah, you're our mikvah director. What makes a person qualified to be a mikvah director? What's the education involved in that? Uh, I have a, a diverse background, I would say, in working with different mikvah. Oh, really, it's a, it's a sideline that I came to a little bit coincidentally. I was in a program to learn Gemara and Halakha more broadly, and one of the years of that education was focused on Hilchot Nida, on the laws that relate to women using the mikvah. And in that context, in the context of being a participant in that program at the Drisha Institute, the program was called the Scholar Circle. It sadly no longer exists. But when it did, in, in that context, I began to work as an intern at a synagogue in Houston, Texas called United Orthodox Synagogues. And under the mentorship of Rabbi Barry Gelman, I began to work with the mikvah attendants in that shul, really with the goal of revamping their mikvah a little bit, revamping their mikvah practices a little bit, bringing all the attendants together for some conversations about what it would mean to be an attendant in the context of their mikvah and what that kind of halachic observance could and should look like in their community. And through that work, I first of all became very interested in the topic of education for mikvah attendants, as well as mikvah users, which is something that I was I was already doing. And I began doing some work with other synagogues as well. As When I went as a scholar in residence in different shul communities, I would often speak either to the mikvah attendants specifically and or to the women or even the women and men of the community about mikvah practice, about related halachot, about sexuality and intimacy. I also did some of that speaking on college campuses. We worked at Princeton for five years before we came to Chicago. And even though 
I would say the vast, vast majority of our constituency there were not themselves mikveh users. They were very interested in learning about sexuality and intimacy and I'm about shocked to hear. Yeah. <laughs> shocks, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it was interesting to me that they were really interested in in mikvah as seeing how that fit into a larger Jewish view of family life, I would say. I actually remember you teaching about that when I was a student at Drisha in, I think, 2012. Sophie maybe was a baby then. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, she I remember there being an infant involved in, in this. You, were, you taught our like, crew of college students about a many-part series on sex and sexuality also. Yeah, I gave them two topics to choose between. I think one was about Staka and the other was about sexuality. And they, <laughs> they chose the sexuality one. Shock. Shocker, right? I, I remember you, you uh, I think, taught like a version of that class here in Chicago our first uh, winter after we moved here. It was a very well-attended class. And I think that spring, the uh, Purim Spiel had a line of, you know, following up on the success of her class on the philosophy of sexuality, the next class will be uh, more classes on philosophy because it was... <laughs> 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 yes, because that's really what people that was the job. For. Yes. Um, so, okay, so now we understand a little bit how you're qualified to be the director of a mikvah. What makes you different than a yoetzet? Are you a yoetzet? What is a yoetzet? I am not a yoetzet because I was never kind of in the right place at the right time to attend the Yoetzet program, which is a program that first existed in Israel. I should say it still exists in Israel. Now they have an American program as well, where Americans are encouraged to participate long distance. I think there's some travel involved. Um, but at the time that I was in yeshiva learning these halachot, I was living in America for all sorts of reasons and uh, was not able to, to be there to attend the Israeli program. And by the time I was in a position to consider it, I had already spend, we'll call it basically a year and a half learning Hilchot Nida. I was already teaching those Halachot, so it didn't feel like the best and most impactful use of my yeshiva time. It is an amazing program. Many communities have yuatzot. Ours does not. What does a yuatzot do when she's in a community, let's say? I think it depends on the community, but Generally speaking, the Yoetzet will maybe consult for the mikvah, will answer questions for women in the community related to Hilchot Nida, and will do general educational programs about those laws. So we're, I think, very fortunate in our community. I've been here for a number of years directing the mikvah in the community. I, I answer many questions about Hilchot Nida. I do educational programming. And now we have you, uh, Reverend Sarno. <laughs> so uh, our community is very well served by the resources that we have. But there are certainly communities for whom having U.S. that has been transformational. For sure. And just to the flesh that out, it's a um, program of the Nishmat uh, Institute in Jerusalem with the American branch also under the directorship of Nishmat um, as well. So it's a proprietary trademarked uh, title. Yes. yes, that's right. Not just anyone can be a U.S. only if you attend Nishmat officially. Correct. And they have a hotline and people call. And it's really, you know, in, in Israel, even it's been transformational in terms of giving kind of women anywhere uh, a phone number to call when they have a question and that they can feel totally comfortable calling because they know it's going to be a woman who will answer in a, in a knowledgeable and, and non-judgmental way, which, which I think feels really wonderful and empowering for Indeed. women. And they have a website also, which is you know, somewhat somewhat useful in, in many situations and people should know about it and uh, you can Google it. Um, I forget the exact website, but they have a website where they answer a lot of like questions as well. Yeah, something like that. But I, I do recommend not always just Googling halachic questions when you have them. You um. should not ask Rabbi Google to answer your questions, but for informational articles, I yes. think that their website is helpful. Yes, definitely. Um, but I know that, that you get, uh, and over the years, your years here, you've gotten many types of, of questions relating to Hilchot Nida. Do you want to share a little bit about what that's been like for you? It's really an amazing thing because I think that, as you mentioned, people are often, uh, first of all, they're often happy to find a woman on the other end of the phone when they mm -hmm. have these questions. And so I get calls really from maybe not all over the world, but I get calls from all over America and from Israel as well. And usually it's women who just got my number from a friend or a friend of a friend, or they got it off the Shul website. There are also people in the community who know me who ask me questions, but I get a lot of questions from people who I don't know, wow. um, which is really a fascinating thing. I think that it's also appealing often to ask questions anonymously. So women will contact me in that regard as well. Um, and then questions from people within the community. I also get questions from brides that I have taught over the years and their friends and their friends' friends. <laughs> so that's really, I think, a very, that's been a very powerful 
piece of my work is that I teach women and men who are engaged and then they ask me questions maybe before their wedding and maybe after their wedding and then I will continue to get questions from them through their so far I would say first second and third children Um, and that's that's an amazing feeling to be able to accompany people on that journey for so long and in broad strokes can you characterize the types of questions the questions are really very diverse everything from I thought I was supposed to go to the mikvah tonight and now I'm not so sure for the following reasons to I'm trying to get pregnant or I'm trying not to get pregnant (laughs) or um, I want to know if this custom that I heard about from my sister-in-law is something that I should also be doing. Yeah, Um, (laughs) more common than anyone would imagine. (laughs) Lots and lots of different types of questions. And you really never know who will ask you what kind of question. That's a very important take-home message for me, that there are women who maybe go to the mikvah sometimes, and it's not always a part of their life, Mm -hmm. but they might have decided that it should be a part of their life right now, and so they'll ask me a halachic question. I also get a lot of questions that are not actually halachic questions mm-hmm. um, in the sense that they're not re- their answers are not really bounded by halacha. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to go to the mikvah because it is my birthday, and I'd like to know, should I do X, Y, and Z, or <laughs> how should this play out? So that's not a technically halachic question in the sense that there are no halachot about going to the mikvah on your birthday. And yet, it's important to take those questions seriously and answer them in a way that makes the person feel that their their spirituality in that moment is being valued and that they can have a meaningful experience at our mikvah. Maybe this is a good time to pivot like uh, to a description of our mikvah and what makes it special. How is it different from some other mikvah that exists in the country, and particularly as pertains to women using the mikvah for a, and men using the mikvah for a diverse range of uh, motivations? The Adam R. Strauss Memorial Mikvah is an Orthodox mikvah that's open to the broader community. We adhere to Orthodox standards for the kashrut of our mikvah, for uh, practices in our mikvah. We put out prayers that are consistent with Orthodox practice and norms, and the advice that we dispense is consistent with with Orthodox practice, Orthodox halakha. At the same time, we want to be open to the community that's around us, which is a diverse community, not just the community that's immediately in our proximity, but being the closest mikvah to downtown Chicago, we also want to be open to the many visitors who pass through our community for all sorts of reasons. And so we're maybe a little bit different in the sense that we don't ask women why they're coming to the mikvah. We don't ask them to share more information than they want to share. The same is true for men, uh, <laughs> men who use our mikvah. We we don't uh, push women towards any particular halachic practice. We don't ask them, have they done any kind of checking or anything like that? We don't. We want to make women feel comfortable in using the mikvah. We don't insist on checking women's bodies before they go into the mikvah. That's a very common practice at mikvah oath that the mikvah attendant will say, I need to check check your nails, I need to check your back, I need to, we offer to check women, but we don't, uh, we don't want to look at any part of a woman's body that she doesn't want looked at, we don't want to touch any part of a woman's body that she doesn't want touched, and so we feel strongly about having the desire to use the mikvah and the crafting of the experience of the mikvah come from the woman who's immersing. And um, while we're talking about mikvah experience, so meaning on a technical halachic level, a mikvah could be a hole in the ground filled with rainwater. Like, just a glorified large puddle could be a mikvah. <laughs> um, so our mikvah is not that. Um, wh- why not? I think for the same reason that you could pray anywhere, but you have preferences about where you'd like to pray and what you'd like that space to be like, <laughs> our mikvah is an opportunity for a woman to have a religious experience, and we want the setting to reflect that. So it needs to be a place that women feel comfortable Women often feel very vulnerable in the mikvah, and for obvious reasons, they're taking off all their clothing, they're coming into a space that maybe is not a space that they regularly inhabit. Mm -hmm. It's a religious space, which feels more comfortable for some and less comfortable for others, and maybe more comfortable for some at different times in their lives and less Mm -hmm. comfortable at other times. Women come to the mikvah for all sorts of reasons. They may be 
grappling with infertility. They may be experiencing a loss. It might they, be their birthday. It might be their birthday. <laughs> they might be going through menopause or perimenopause. They might be coming after the birth of a child. They might be coming after the birth of their last child. Mm-hmm. Um, they might be coming in anticipation of the birth of a child. And we want to create an environment that supports all of those possibilities and makes women feel welcome and comfortable in, in all of those mental places that they are. Mm-hmm. You mentioned attendance before. Can you say something about the attendants? Who are the attendants? How does one become an attendant? Uh, do you have all the attendants you need? Or are you looking for more? And if I'm going to the mikvah, do I need an attendant? Mm-hmm. Yes. So we are very fortunate that our mikvah is staffed by volunteer attendants who give generously of their time so that our community can have its own mikvah. And these are women who are generally living within the community, although we have had attendance from outside of the ASBI community, women who just feel that our mikvah is such an important addition to the Chicago community that they want to be able to support our mikvah. We have volunteers who are not attendants as well, some of whom live in our community and some of whom do not, who do things like answering email and scheduling mikvah attendance and scheduling appointments. And those are all important contributions as well that I want to recognize. Our attendants are women who either are or have been mikvah users themselves who want to give back to the community. And they volunteer typically between one and three nights a month to be available to anyone who wants to use the mikvah on that night. We are always looking for more Mm -hmm. volunteer attendants. We have a constant cycle of women who are more available one month and less available another month, women who have a new baby and can't make it out for a few months, women who are traveling. And so we're always looking for more attendance. Anyone who's interested should please get in contact with me. Part of my role as mikvah director is to run trainings for new attendants, to recruit and run trainings for new attendants. And we have a training, God willing, coming up in the next couple of weeks. So if you'd like to get in on that, please get in touch with me. I'm wondering why it's actually important that there be a mikvah in Lakeview. Meaning, you said before, oh, our mikvah is the closest one to downtown, but I don't know if that's true. I think Lake Michigan is probably closer to downtown <laughs> than our mikvah, and one could theoretically use Lake Michigan as a mikvah. It'd be very cold and very public. Many months of the year, I would not recommend <laughs> that, but I know there are people who are into that. Um, but what, meaning there's a mikvah in West Rogers Park, there's mikvah in Skokie. Why, why, do we, why does our community actually need to have a mikvah? Maybe this is also a good time to say that we freak out when our mikvah temperature drops below about 88 degrees. <laughs> so if you're looking for a warm experience, that's supposed to be. Um, I think it is very important both for the community here in Lakeview and also for the broader Chicago community. For the community here in Lakeview, it's important to have a mikvah that is close by, that is walking distance for those who are going to use the mikvah on Friday nights, on holidays, or just at a time when it would be inconvenient to drive. Okay, not very far, but I'm going to say it's at least 20, 25 minutes to drive to the nearest mikvah, not counting Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really important. And I think that for the continued growth of our community, it's important when people look to move to a community, they look at ASBI, and we can honestly say that we have everything that one needs for an orthodox lifestyle here in Lakeview. Part of that certainly is having access to a local mikvah. More broadly, in terms of the larger Chicagoland Jewish community, I think that our mikvah contributes something very important to the larger landscape because of the component that I mentioned earlier about having a mikvah that is designed to support Orthodox halakha, but is open to the broader community. There are many women who have come to use our mikvah over the years who have told me that this is the first mikvah where they feel really comfortable coming to the mikvah. This is the first mikvah where they feel welcomed, despite whatever external indicator it is that would make them feel uncomfortable at another mikvah. There are women who have come to our mikvah and have told me that this is the first time they've ever used a mikvah because they didn't feel that they would be welcome at another mikvah. And our mikvah, we do put a lot of thought. I think part of this volunteer group of attendants, one one piece of that is not just that the women are attending, but because they're volunteering, they feel really invested. And our volunteers do things like say, you know, we really need to have fragrance-free products in our mikvah because mm-hmm. the shampoo and conditioner need to be available to women who have 
hours use and they'll provide that. We have attendants who say, you know what, our blow dryers are kind of out of date. I'd like to buy new ones and replace them for the mikvah. We have attendants who say, you know what would be really nice? It would be really nice if we had candles and more places in our mikvah so that we could have a better ambiance. I think that you get that when you have the kind of investment that our volunteers have in the mikvah. And that's something that maybe not every mikvah has and that we contribute to the larger landscape of the Chicago community. Let's talk about some common misconceptions that people have about mikvahs. So the first question that I get a lot is, um, is it clean? Is the water clean? (laughs) Yes, the water is clean. Um, You can think of a mikvah as a, I tell people, either a small pool or a sort of medium-sized jacuzzi, uh, (laughs) but without the jets. Our mikvah is... Uh, It's chlorinated. It's brominated, technically, but that's very similar to chlorine. So (laughs) the water is clean. We also have it serviced by a pool company. And someday I'd love to find out what Mike the pool guy thinks is going on (laughs) in our mikvah. Maybe we should interview him. Um, But he uh, he services our pool regularly and cleans it. um, And the mikvah attendants are provided with a little... Uh, kind of water gun-like thing that we can use to pull anything out of the water that falls in there that shouldn't be there. But yes, our mikvah is clean. And how is our um, human-sized mikvah connected or in any way related? We have another mikvah, which is our Caleb mikvah. Oh, yeah. We have a, a mikvah for vessels. <laughs> we do. And I don't uh, I don't know the logistics of the piping for the Caleb mikvah actually as well as I do for the... Do you want to chime in? <laughs> Uh, it's the same. It's the same board. The same. The same pit of rainwater is what animates. Uh, you know, sort of is, is is beneath connected to the immersion pit and the. Uh, so both immersion, I guess the immersion pit for humans. forks and the one for humans uh, are is city filtered city water uh, that's uh, replenished and cleaned, uh, and they each. I are... would say the Caleb McFly is cleaned. Occasionally. <laughs> no, the water, though, is, is not. The water is, is also city water that you're putting It's in. city water, but it's been there for a few months as opposed to the... It's human, not filtered. It's not filtered. So this is a great time to mention that the... Uh, the mikvah committee, which is another volunteer mm. opportunity, we have a mikvah committee that um, helps me in in governing the mikvah and figuring out where we can make improvements. And the mikvah committee is currently contemplating some improvements to the Kalen mikvah, which include draining it and refilling it. Um, and yes, you should definitely, you do not have to shower after you use the mikvah. That's your own choice. It depends on whether or not you like the smell of pools. Uh, <laughs> but you should probably wash your dishes after you immerse them in the Kayla mikvah. Um, and that is adjacent to our mikvah. It's open to all during the day. There's a code that you can get from the shul office to access that room. And we leave it open only during the daytime hours so that at night when women are using our person mikvah, they won't be distracted by the sounds from dishes the and dish silverware mikvah. being uh, jostled in the next room. Exactly. <laughs> but it is it is immediately adjacent to it is the same pit and um, and like our mikvah needs needs always needs more upkeep. <laughs> I think we've been using this word um, pit and animates the mikvah. Yeah. Why don't, do one of you want to say more sure, about yeah, so, what that so, means? Yes, yes. The, the halachic force of a mikvah, the effectiveness of the mikvah comes from either a uh, Mayim Chaim, a spring, a natural spring that bubbles up from the ground. We don't have one uh, here in, in, in our... Not yet. Uh, not yet. Not in our, there's none <laughs> in, our, in our site. Uh, or it can be rainwater that has been collected and, you know, contained in one location uh, without ever having been drawn into a bucket or a you know, in any other type of receptacle. So we have collected rainwater pits that are, the rain is collected uh, once every few years, actually, from the roof of the mikvah. It goes directly into the pits without ever being collected collected in any way, being drawn in any way, uh, in a very sort of carefully uh, designed uh, collection process. And then that water is good to go, and it's, it's there in those pits. And then that those pits of rainwater are, are touching a... The Hebrew word shaka. is a hashaka. They're kissing. Nice. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the immersion pit. And the immersion pit then can be city water that's uh, filtered and cleaned and warmed and heated and all those things and, and uh, a comfortable thing to immerse in. And it's kosher for these ritual purposes because it is uh, touching the, the rainwater pit, which, we, you know, which retains its uh, vitality you know, through, over, over the years. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like to get a sense of the... The impact, I would say, of rainwater on the mikvah. I mean, this is not not from a halachic perspective, but if you just want to experience it, you should try being in our mikvah when it's raining. Oh, yes, mm. because it's a very since we have that that pipe there 
it's a little bit hard to describe, but it's sort of a metal and it runs down the side of the mikvah. Um, it, it sounds very dramatic. If you can imagine being sort of inside a tin house while it's raining. So you really have a sense of the presence of rainwater in our mikvah when right, it's raining. Just to clarify, right? Because the pits are already filled, right, that rainwater not, yeah. is diverted into the sewer and is not being collected, but it still passes through the mikvah on its way to the sewer uh, because that's how it was designed. And it's not it's also just for halachic uh, accuracy. The, the um, cause I think it's, it might be significant. The, the metal is the casing, but the it's all cement uh, on the inside. Uh, on the inside, yeah. So the yes. water is not passing through any metal, anything at all. It's just okay. passing through a cement. But it does a, sound very dramatic sound very loud. on yes, its way. I, I've, I've experienced that too. <laughs> um, so just just to round this out and clarify, if you've used our vessel mikvah, our fork mikvah, um, and you're wondering, is this what the human mikvah is like in terms no, of cleanliness, no, 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 heat, no, no, no. experience? The answer to all of the above is no. The answer in terms of its ability to change something from an uh, from one status to another, let's say it like that. Um, it, yes, and it, it draws on the same collection of rainwater, and in, they're in the same kind of general vicinity within the shawl because of that, obviously. Yes, but we've tried to, we've invested a lot in making the person mikvah a, a beautiful experience, as, you, as was described. Um, and we are looking forward to investing in our vessel mikvah to make yeah. it a similarly exciting. Right. The, and, forks, and the forks don't complain as much, but, but uh, I, I, I understand there's a value in, in having that experience also um, be an aesthetic one. Yes. Um, what are other common misconceptions, questions you might get about the mikvah? I think one misconception that I touched on earlier, which is that maybe the mikvah is not for me. Maybe I wouldn't mm. be allowed to go to the mikvah. Maybe I don't really belong there. Like I'm not and religious enough to you. I'm deserved. Yeah. yeah, I'm not religious enough. And, um, you know, I would sort of be looked at, um, you know, askance. Yes, people people would not be happy to see me at the mikvah and I that is certainly a misconception at our mikvah where anyone who wants to immerse is really welcome and we do our best to as I mentioned before help those who are immersing craft the experience that's going to be most meaningful for them I think another question that I get a lot from people that I'm teaching about mikvah is um, the presence of the attendant mm-hmm. in general right it's very um, intimidating to like be not wearing any clothes around another let's say a member of your shawl um, what can can you speak to that experience at all, or why someone maybe should not be intimidated by that? Sure, our attendants are there for a few purposes. I think on the most basic level, it's water safety. I think that when you're immersing in a pool of water, it's good to have somebody else on the premises knowing that you're immersing in that pool of water. Uh, our attendants are also there to ensure the overall quality of the experience and to be responsible for the logistical components. So they'll let you into the building, they'll provide you with towels, they'll tell you where everything is, they will collect payment for the immersion. All of those things are really important. On a halachic level, the attendant is there to make sure that your entire body is immersed in the mikvah simultaneously, which is a condition of a kosher immersion, that every part of a woman's body goes under the water simultaneously. Technically, halachically, if a woman were to be able to ensure that without the presence of an attendant, then that is that could still be considered a kosher immersion. Our attendants are there to ensure the best possible experience. If a woman comes to our mikvah and says, listen, this is going to make me really uncomfortable if you actually watch me immerse, then we are happy to either stay in the room with our back turned or leave the room with the stipulation that uh, the woman should please let us know when she's back in the preparation room, again, for water safety purposes. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned um, payment. I know when I often, again, um, people are surprised that they have to pay to use a mikvah. They don't have to pay to come to Shacharit, for example, in the shawl. Um, why does mikvah involve payment? I think you said to me earlier that the mikvah is one of the most expensive things that the shul does, which hadn't hadn't really occurred to me, I guess, um, that we also do earn money but um, through this payment. But the mikvah is very expensive. We're essentially running a small pool, or I guess kind of two small pools, one very small pool. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of money that goes into upkeep and repairs and supplies. It's just an expensive thing to run. I guess anyone who's ever owned a pool, which does not include me, (laughs) would know about that. We have the tablets for the bromine. We have the pool upkeep. 
Uh, every once in a while, we have repairs that need to be done. We're running sort of a, a public bathhouse with baths and showers and the heating bill and the hot water. And so the cleaning, laundry. there's a lot of expenses associated with it. And we do our best to keep it as affordable as possible. Also, of course, no one's ever turned away for lack of funds. So someone who's thinking, maybe I thought I didn't belong at the mikvah, but maybe I do, but maybe I can't afford to pay, is certainly welcome to come. When people come and say, I don't have any money on me, we give them information to pay on the Shul website, and often they do. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're, we are open to that. And then, of course, there are people who contribute more to the mikvah because they want to make that opportunity available for others, mm. and we appreciate that very much as well. Nice. Um when we have guests on the podcast, we often we often like to ask them, um, where can someone find you? <laughs> um, you can find me uh, kind of in the middle of the women's section, sometimes surrounded by some number of our five children, and I'm there pretty much every week. Thank you so much for joining us. I learned a lot, and I hope our listeners did as well. Our mikvah is a huge part of, uh, as as you've heard, the mikvah is a very important part of the work that we do here at Anshay Shalom, and we're so we're so lucky to have you as the mikvah director. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So we just heard that Safaria has added the Gilyonot, the source sheets, the study guides of Nechemi Leibovitz to their database. And so we wanted to take advantage. We thought we would uh, learn something from this coming week's uh, parasha. Parsha Kedoshim. Parsha Kedoshim from one of these Gilyonot, which is now available. In addition to being published in books and in other uh, places, it's now on the Safari website. So in this week's parasha, one of the many, many mitzvot that are introduced and taught in this week's parasha, uh, we are told, Lifnei uh, Se. One should rise before the the aged uh, and the darpanes. Okay, and then you should also show honor to the uh, to the um, uh, to the elderly, to the sage. Uh, and uh, one of my favorite things about Israel is that instead of just normal signs, let's say normal things, sometimes those <laughs> signs are quotations from Tanakh because that's an amazing thing about the revival of the Hebrew language in our day. And so on buses, instead of saying like, give up this seat for people with disabilities or whatever, which is what you, you'll have on city buses in other countries, you'll have this verse that says, Mipne Sevatakum, put above those, those bus seats that are, that are uh, meant to be designated for people uh, who are aged. Yes. So uh, the question that then arises uh, uh, that is discussed in the Talmud and also in the Midrash uh, on this verse is uh, what, who is included in this mitzvah? For whom must one rise? So the Sifra says, uh, Sifra is the halachic Midrash on Sefer Vayikra, the... Um, there's two different kinds of midrash. Um, <laughs> one kind of midrash, are, it's called midrash halacha, which this is an example of, where um, we learn out from. It's part of the um, process from by which we learn how to live based on the Torah. So there's a verse in the Torah, and how does that translate into directive for how to act in the world? Um, and that translation process happens in the midrash halacha. And then sometimes what we normally call like the midrash, um, or like made popular by the little midrash says, <laughs> um, are more like midrash agadah which are like stories and fan fiction um, on the Torah. So this is Midrash Halacha. Yes, so it's, it's trying to connect the, what we do with the verses in the Torah. And, feel, and exactly. So uh, the opening question, what about if there's a... Uh, yeah, an old person who's not so impressive uh, in there, you know, doesn't really know that, that much, and uh, not an unimpressive person despite being old. So the second half of the verse uh, says that we should respect the zakein, the sage. And the, clearly, or the, in the language of the Torah, in the Torah's vocabulary, the word zakein implies that someone is also wise. It says in Numbers 11, Moshe gathers together the 70 elders the 70 sages to form that uh, prototype of the Sanhedrin and they are referred to as Zikne Yisrael the sages of Israel uh, and so Zakain is a word that implies not just um, age uh, chronologically but also wisdom that's sort of this opening position stated in the Midrash uh, a second opinion is then introduced Yosek Lili Omer Yosek Lili says Ein Zaken Ela Misha Kana Chachma no a, a, uh, a Zakain is somebody who has acquired Wisdom, which is, seems similar to that first opinion, but is a subtly different, and we'll, we'll we'll sort of tease it out in a moment. 
but uh, that that's his uh, his position. Uh, and then you uh, see Ben Yehuda says afilu kol seva Any old person is included. That's included in this implication of uh, rising before uh, the aged. Uh, doesn't matter if they're wise, if they're not wise. Somebody who reaches um, that designation of being elderly uh, deserves our respect. You should rise when they walk past. Okay, so then um, Nahama collected um, a few sources first for study. So that's one, the Sifra, and then. Um, she brings in the Malbim also comments on this and what the Malbim does is tries to take apart these opinions, particularly the two that, that we've already flagged as seeming very similar, the first opinion uh, brought in the Sefra and then also the opinion of Rabbi Yossi Haglili, who both seem to be interpreting um, this language of Zakin to mean someone who is um, uniquely wise so the Malbim says, Dada Tanakama so the first opinion it's that actually that this whole verse of Lifne Sevata Kum Hadarta Pene Zakin um is all just it it's 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 just repetitive. It, and so therefore when it says Hadarta Pene Zakin, Zakin teaches you what Seva is in the first half of the verse. And um and it's all just about if you're you deserve the level of respect that we're discussing if you are wise. And Rabbi Yossi Aglili says, no, actually, the two halves of the verse are teaching you about different things. The verse is Shnei Mishpatim, it says the Malbim. Lomar, panim, that, that you should uh, give honor to wise people and stand up before them. And there's two different uh, kinds of wise people. Chacham al yedei seva, so someone who is, who is wise through their old age. Shazkenim asfu chachma al yedei hanisayon v'tol um, that someone who's who's elderly has gathered wisdom through their life experience, um, and that's one kind of wisdom. And then there's another kind of wisdom, which is chacham al yedei haruach, someone who is by by their spirit, by their nature, smart, wise. Shalifamim yashpia Hasham shafa chokma al ish tzair. That that sometimes God overflows a overflow of wisdom um, towards even a young person. And that person is also called a Zakin. And I, I, I am sensitive maybe to that's not necessarily even their nature that makes them this young person wise it's maybe like a special divine grace that even though you don't have mm-hmm. to go through those trials and tribulations of life and have those life experiences somehow God's bounty will select somebody to be given uh, th- this uh, outsized wisdom even even at a young age and you certainly meet I don't know, at least my experience is that you meet children like that that children can, I mean, all children have a certain wisdom and perspective that adults have a lot to learn from, that, but that there are certain children who are just like, wow. You know, wise beyond their years or just a real maturity that yeah, it seems to be, I guess the Malvin would say that's this ruach that comes from, mm-hmm. that comes from God. Uh, so what, what's really special about Nechama as a teacher, as a, as a scholar, is that she had uh, more than enough um, command of the Torah commentary literature to have written her own, you know, line by line running commentary on Chumash had she chosen to do so. But her life and career were really focused on being a pedagogue, being a teacher, and uh, really also in she was a teacher of teachers. She empowered her students yeah. to become, and actually many people who taught me Parsha Newt uh, over the years, very impactful teachers of mine who taught me Parsha Newt were her real-life students uh, in the flesh. And so her, uh, these Gilyonot, these sheets that she made, that she prepared for students, that she mailed out to students uh, uh, all across the world, they were collected sources. Here we just saw two sources. We have a collection of this, the Sifra. Um, she notes there's a parallel, uh, similar passage in, in the Gemara and Kedushin. And then this passage from the Malvim. Uh, and... And then what she did was she, she asked some questions for, for us to answer, to, to see these sources, to contemplate them, and then to, to try to answer them, to make sure we understand well, and then to think a little bit deeper. And originally, people would actually send her in the mail. Correct. Um, Sarah mentioned that uh, she would like mimeograph these questions yes. and mail them out, and people would send back, and she would correct them with red pen. Yes. Um, and, um, and so while what remains of her original work are these questions, you actually could probably, if, if you gathered enough uh, students' responses and her corrections on the responses, you probably could gather what her answers were, but I think it's it's in some ways purposeful not to publish those. Um, there's another form of commentary which would be you know kind of more standard like Rashi, where you actually have to guess. Like there's entire books.
books written, what's bothering Rashi? Yeah. Whereas with Nechama, and, and he gives you the answer, and you have to figure out what the question was, and yeah, what was yeah. wrong with the verse, such that Rashi had to come in and explain the, the solution. Whereas with Nechama, it's really the opposite. You know exactly what's bothering Nechama, but it's on you to come up with your own answer. And, and in some ways, that preservation of the question um, has deep roots in the Jewish tradition, meaning the Talmud is full of questions, many of which the Talmud says, uh, take you. Yeah. I don't know what the yeah, answer is yeah. to that. Um, but the questions are preserved because they're these like timeless and intense questions. Um, and, and I think our tradition really does believe that, that in, in many ways questions are more powerful than answers and leaving just questions and, and up to every generation to find their own, their own, or every student to find their own answers is a very um, powerful pedagogical tool. Should we look at some questions? Yeah. Okay. So the first question that she poses, So that middle opinion, uh, how, in what way does he agree with that first opinion? What way does he disagree? The first opinion, recall the anonymous uh, first opinion in this uh, passage, in this Midrash, says that we only should show honor to the the elderly who are also wise. Um, Rasi Haglili says... Uh, in, through the interpretation through the, of the Malvim. Through the prism of the Malvim. Uh, let's go, go that direction. He says that uh, we show really, really both. We, we, we are, the, so I guess he agrees that we, he agrees with the Tanakamu, that first opinion that we honor only those elderly people who are also wise and deserving of that honor through the content of their wisdom. And also we show honor to young people who are who are wise. Uh, and that actually when the verse uses this language of seva and zakain, so so seva comes to teach us about the elderly also wise, but that the, the thrust of the verse is much more about wisdom than it is really about age, and it's just age as one way of acquiring wisdom, but not the unique way or exclusive way of acquiring wisdom. That's the argument of Rabbi Yossi Haglili. Yeah, yeah. And uh, her second question, what See Ben Yehuda, that third opinion that we should rise for any elderly person. How is he different from that second opinion? So the second, I mean, his his disagreement is quite obvious because Isi uh, Ben Yehuda says any old person, you stand up. Somebody, that's why you stick that that, that sticker on the bus. Really, should say according to Isi uh, <laughs> Ben Yehuda, any yeah. older person gets on the bus, get up, let them have their yeah. seat, or they walk past, stand up in honor to them, even if they don't need a seat, but mm-hmm. you should stand up anyway. Uh, so that's certainly a difference in the earlier two opinions. Um, does he agree that you, sh- that you should stand as well for a young person who's wise? I, I maybe. It's, I, I think it's He unstated. doesn't learn it out of this verse, let's say like that. I think he's saying, right, there, there's, a, there, there's a funny way in which the Tanakama and Isi Ben Yehuda agree, even though they say completely opposite things, mm-hmm. um, which is that they both read the verse as a unity. Um, yes, there's these two yes. clauses that they read as one rule. So for the Tanakama, that rule is um, wise and old. For Isi Ben Yehuda, that rule is just um, is just old. Um, and but but neither of them have in the way that Rabbi Yossi Haglili does of each each clause is coming to Seva teach and Zakan teach us something different. Very good. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, her third question: So, which of these three is actually the most demanding? Which is the strictest in its um, position on us to rise uh, before uh, yeah, and, and show honor the to those people? Is whether you think there's more wise people or more old people? <laughs> right. So I guess if you think that right, but if you think every old person is actually a wise person, right? You could read Rabbi Yosei as saying every old person is a wise person, and in addition, you have to stand up for young people who happen to be wise. You could, I think you could read reviews. I'm not 100% convinced mm, of this. Yeah, but I yeah. wonder, and, and in that case, that would for sure be the most machmir, because that's every old people and wise young people. Yes. And I think that's more or less the practice. That certainly should be the practice. I think it's appropriate to stand, and we've <laughs> talked about this in other contexts. Uh, you know, if you've had, uh, had a teacher who really uh, hammered this into us, and I try to gently hammer it into other people as well. At a wedding, there's a practice, which is not an old practice. It did not have people who, you speak to people who went to weddings uh, 20, 30 years ago, this did not happen. 40 years ago, this did not happen. That uh, when the bride and groom walked down the aisle at Orthodox weddings, everyone stands as they mm-hmm. walked down the aisle. I think that was not, again, not done a generation or two ago. And that's fine. Okay. You know, it's okay. To, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, in standing when the bride and groom walked down the aisle. But really, there's a halakhic obligation, probably, okay, mm-hmm. to stand when the uh, when the grandparents uh, walk down the aisle, like they're the ones who—that's uh, a mitzvah. And when an older, when elderly people uh, pass by, uh, we should we should stand in their in their presence. And the practice also is to stand for people who are wise. If you in yeshivot when. Uh, 
uh, when teachers walk into the room, uh, the students stand as they walk into the room. And that's mm-hmm. something that I think is, uh, we find that in Orthodox culture when uh, Torah scholars pass by, people rise in deference to them and they don't necessarily have to be uh, very particularly old for that to, for that to happen. You know what's funny is that um, it's not just a piece of Orthodox culture, like in a court when the judge walks in, in uh, secular courts, right? All rise. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That's a thing. Um, Ethan and I watch a lot of like political TV shows and when the president walks into a room right. in the West Wing, let's say, everyone yeah. stands up. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's funny because it kind of seems like it would be one of those like quirky Orthodox things, um, but but it, it actually does play out in secular culture in these like very specific environments. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not getting too far afield from uh, our lesson <laughs> to come. I, I think that's a, I think, um, sadly, I think there's few, too, in my opinion, too few environments where we... Um, have that sense of like hadar, you know, of like real mm-hmm. glory and honor. And I guess we preserve it in the court situation where we do a lot of like the judge and sitting up on high and the mm-hmm. bench. And there's a lot that's done to create this gravitas of the moment. And I guess in certain, you know, clearly hierarchical situations like like the president or yeah. in military settings, right. you would stand and salute, right? Uh, where we give honor to people based on their accomplishments or the role that they have to play uh, for a sort of social um, situation to unfold appropriately. Uh, and I, I think we we could do well with more of it. When I came to yeshiva after high school, I went to a a public high school where I had some wonderful teachers and also uh, some uh, terrible teachers, some, right, like some teachers who... (laughs) That's Stuyvesant? Crazy. The the union regulations uh, didn't allow the school to select necessarily all of the best teachers always. And... uh, (laughs) Uh, and actually, you have some teachers who are very. Um, this is also true in yeshivas. You have people who are very effective teachers uh, and very uh, intelligent people who are also uh, can be uh, immoral and criminals. And that was actually a problem at my high school. Oh, no. uh, we had, but uh, I, I so that anyway, uh, <laughs> leaving behind that that uh, that setting where I yeah, I had some t- several teachers whom I had tremendous admiration for, but it wasn't a universal. Um, uh, feeling and to come to yeshiva where I did have admiration for all of my teachers, I really felt great pride in standing when I, when I when the mm-hmm. faculty of the yeshiva would walk into the classroom before giving shir, and it was a sense of uh, I felt it added uh, importance and value to what I was doing as a mm-hmm. student that we were studying something really really important, so important that the people who are teaching me this like like they deserve to have everyone stand when they walk into the room. Yeah. Uh, and I uh, think yeah. in general Israel, like I remember even um, I lived in Israel for a year when I was in fifth grade, and we would refer to our teachers in the third person. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. does does the teacher yeah. think yeah. this? Yeah. 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 Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And um, just the the idea of like reverence and in, in yeah. Israeli education. Uh, society, you know, for all that, there's plenty to critique about Israeli mm-hmm. education, but that that particular thing, I think, is very, very strong, and and that we could do more of it um, in America. But but I wanted to also just transition back to the elderly a little bit because I think this vision of an old person walks in and and you you assume that they their years have given them incredible knowledge and that that therefore we should um, because of their age and because of the wisdom that comes with age um, give them this kind of reverence um, is so is so foreign from like I think standard American culture and even meaning I was just sitting in on on this whole talk about elder abuse and how rampant it is and kind of how mm-hmm. how divergent is is that reality from what the Torah commands of us mm-hmm. in terms of respect for the elderly and this was about watching out to make sure that people's finances aren't taken advantage of that people's bodies aren't taken advantage mm-hmm. of with the vulnerabilities of old age and to say okay like the this person's like gosh me us maybe their physicality is 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 kind of vulnerable in this way but their intellect has mm-hmm. has gained so much over time and, and and because of that we should be according them um incredible respect um is like a really important message of the torah that that comes up in this week's parsha we've avoided the fourth question because it's the hardest one yes uh the fourth question is uh <laughs> So she uses grammatical terms, which I'm not uh, fully familiar with, but I, I think I understand the point that she's making. Seva is, uh, would translate really as, uh, as uh, old age, rise before old age in the first half of the verse. And the second half of the verse is showing honor to uh, an elder, the elderly, right? It's a person. It's an individual in the second half of the verse, whereas in mm-hmm. the first first half of the verse, it's a, it's a concept. It's a concept, concept. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so these are two, two types of nouns, right? Which, uh, again, I don't, have, I don't have a grammatical vocabulary in Hebrew, <laughs> but that, that, is, that is what she's... Uh, and that's a really interesting observation. And uh, I, I don't think I have uh, an answer. 
Well, I do think that, meaning, I don't know if this is the right answer, but I just, it, it, it like spurs a thought in me, which is that um, we have reverence for really old things that are not old people. Like just the, the like state of oldness um, inspires something. Mm-hmm. I think like you go to a museum and you see something that's like, you know, from the, the second temple period or mm-hmm. the stone age, right? You go to, like, okay, like uh, you go, like in Israel, you can go in the, in the, around the Carmel, you can go see stuff from the stone age and like... If I were to, like, take a rock and, like, I don't know, scribble something on a wall, no one would be like, wow, it's amazing. But the fact that that thing is just so old, like, really, it it is, like, kind of inspiring. And maybe, like, the Torah is trying to foster that reaction through the language of seva. Like oldness, oldness should 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 inspire so something I, in you. Interesting, interesting. I have, I have the beginnings of an answer, maybe in line with some of what we saw. Maybe let's say Issi Ben Yehuda's position uh, that the Seva position, right? We yeah. have to honor every elderly person, mm-hmm. regardless of their personal circumstances and how wise they may actually be. So the Torah gives us that uh, command in a sort of more general term, like Seva age, right? Um, whereas the Zakane is that's somebody who is wise whether or not they're old. And so therefore the Torah uh, hones in and, and uses a language, a word to describe an individual person wh- whose um, actual characteristics are going to be directly um, the cause of our treatment of him or her, right? So, so that's that could be. I guess it's just like Lily's position, right? That's mm-hmm. that the that the we, we every elderly person and also the young people who are wise deserve respect. And so, uh, and so therefore the Torah uses a broad term to refer to um, like age, old age, and then a more specific term to refer to the zaken who is mm-hmm. uh, usually old, but really is somebody who is wise, uh, and because th- that person. Uh, might be you know wise beyond their years, but still um, earn our um, our honor. That's, that's and that's a more individual assessment, yeah. As opposed to like, how old are you? Therefore, this, yeah. You know, like yeah. you're 18, therefore you can vote. Like therefore you're mature enough to vote. Like, you know, there's something like funny about that, but also kind of experientially true about that. And yeah, uh, yeah and I, I think I think just uh, part, I think what you're a little bit getting at is that um, it feels like Rabiosi Aglili is the most um, explicitly careful reader of. The, the repetitiveness of this verse um, and that there's something that's very um, compelling about that. And it makes you kind of wonder whether with this question, Nahama is kind of like pushing you towards yeah, this, at, least, also. at least at least she's telling us perhaps how he read the verse. And I, you know, mm-hmm. I think this is something that more broadly, um, you know, we saw in the model he says, whenever the Torah repeats itself, it's always something different. I think yeah. that's a major difference between certainly the Malbim and many classic mm-hmm. um, Torah commentaries and the assumptions of, like say modern biblical scholarship, where in modern biblical scholarship you have these certainly in poetry, biblical poetry, you have all of these um, repeated, and that's just the model, right? In Hazinu, right? And you assume that the first half and the second half sort of mean the same thing. The second half is a poetic recapitulation right. of the first half. They both sort of mean the same thing. And the more traditional approach among like is that rabbinic every leaders, word in the Torah yeah. it gives us unique meaning. And I mean, if if you, if you didn't have that principle, like the Talmud would be half the length that it is, <laughs> right? <laughs> like I, I don't know, some insane percentage of the Talmud is like, what well, uses this word over here? But yeah, exactly. why do we need that word if they had to see just that? Right. There's no extra word in the Torah, therefore, yeah. whatever. It's like in a, one of the most fundamental hermeneutics. So, it's, so that's again, again a strength of Yosef yeah. Lili is that he seems to be uh, like really take like in this instance at least he sort of is finding significance in both halves of the verse and the two different light words that are used and the two the different grammatical forms those two words take and that seems to, to strengthen him. So uh, so all of this uh, uh, is is the the this learning that we've just were able to partake of is really the careful curation and guidance of Nakama Leibovitz and her her um, collection of commentaries putting them together uh, and and guiding us. Towards Towards, uh, kind of discovering things that we, I, I certainly would have would have missed if I had just uh, looked through any of these sources on their own without having her having brought them into dialogue mm-hmm. with each other with her guiding questions. And and it's an amazing um, form of of writing wherein like we just had a twenty odd minute conversation based on four sentences. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. like an amazing way to teach. I think an amazing yeah. model for all of us. Thank you so much for joining us for our episode today and for listening. As always, we would like to thank our producer, Haley Leventhal. And we always love feedback. Um, good feedback. Feel free to send us emails. Tell us in person. Tell your friends about it and how amazing um, you feel the Straw Hat is. And uh, we're asking for any uh, negative feedback to be written out on note cards and tied with ribbon to the lilac bush in front of the shoulder. All right. Have a good week. <laughs>